through St. Pete's. It's great to see familiar faces, but it's also great to see new people here. And if you're new to Dundee and if you're new to this church or if you're looking for a church, let me just give you four things to think about, four things to pray about. Worship. Is this a church where I can worship God? Fellowship. Is, is this a church where I can meet the people of God and get to know them? Discipleship. Is this a place where I can come to know Jesus and come to know him better? And finally, service. Is this a place where I can serve? Serve the people of God, serve the community. Because that final strand is absolutely critical. Because church is not just what God can do for me, but church then becomes what I can do for God and with God's people. We're going to turn together now in John's Gospel, John chapter 5. And I'm going to read from verse 16 to the end of the chapter. John, if you know the Gospel, is very deliberately organized. John presents us seven miraculous signs of Jesus. John presents us seven I am sayings of Jesus. And you'll notice at the beginning of chapter 5 is one of those miraculous signs, the healing at the pool. John chapter 6 is another one of those miraculous signs, the feeding of the 5,000. But what you also have in John are what I would describe as the in-between passages. The in-between passages that reveal something to us of the character and of the nature of God. And even by the controversies that we see, the, the conflicts that Jesus encounters, in those conflicts we learn something critical about him and something critical about ourselves. So let's read John chapter 5. This is page 1068 if you have one of the Red Pew Bibles. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does, also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, To your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. 
By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to, sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy this light. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Amen. May God add his own blessing to his word. It's really a question of identity. Who? Who is this Jesus? You think of any relationship any human relationship. And that relationship must somehow begin with an exchange of information. You need to know who I am. You need to know my name. I need to know who you are. I need to know your name. Simply knowing each other's name doesn't mean that there's a relationship, but that's an essential start, isn't it? Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? What brings you here? These are all ways of starting not just a conversation, but beginning what might become a relationship. I need to know you, you need to know me. And in terms of a relationship with God, we need to have clear in our minds this identity, the identity of Jesus. And that's what makes the words of Jesus at times so difficult, so difficult to understand, so difficult to grasp because he is making such remarkable claims about himself. And that's what got him into such great trouble. That's what brought him into such sharp conflict. Because even his enemies, his detractors, knew what he was saying. They understood what he was getting at. Ironically, it was very often the disciples of Jesus that missed the mark, that fell short of understanding the words of Jesus and their implications, but it was the enemies of Jesus that picked him up very clearly. So in this passage... We begin with the identity of Jesus. Who is he really? What claims is he making about himself? Because if we get that wrong, 
if we don't have a real grasp as to who Jesus is, then everything else will be flawed in some way. Our understanding of God, our understanding of ourselves, our, the concept of church or what it means to live or the purpose in life. Because in this passage, Jesus makes a remarkable and, and astounding statement. He says uh, in verse 17, when he was criticized for working on the Sabbath, he said, My father is always at his work to this very day. You see, the Sabbath rest of God was not because God was tired. God doesn't tire. It wasn't because God didn't have anything to do, because God always has something to do. He created the world, yes, but he sustains the world. God can't take a day off. Jesus says, just as the Father is working, so am I working. And in verse 18, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, that was bad enough, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is the cornerstone of our faith, that we have Jesus Christ, who became man, but Jesus Christ, who is God, God in the flesh. Fully God and fully man. That's the mystery of the incarnation. That's the mystery of the Christmas event. But that's the absolute cornerstone upon which all of our faith, all of our life is built. So Jesus is equal in power with God. Jesus is equal in knowledge with God. Jesus is equal in authority with God. Jesus is equal in holiness with God. Jesus is equal in majesty with God. There is a complete and perfect equality between God the Father and God the Son. You can't separate them. You can't distinguish them on this level. And Jesus goes on to say that not only is there an equality in character or in nature, but there's also an equality in terms of action. In verse 10, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, this is a key by which we can really unlock the whole of the New Testament. Because when we see Jesus, we see God. When we hear Jesus, we hear God. When we see Jesus doing things, we see God doing things. So whatever the Bible tells us about Jesus, that we learn about God. We see the character of Jesus, we learn the character of God. We, see, we hear the words of Jesus, we see the actions of Jesus whether they are miracles or whether he engaging with people or even his enemies. So whenever you read or see Jesus in the Bible, there we see God. Everything that we know about Jesus is true about God. Everything that we know about God is true about Jesus. Now this is an astounding claim that here this man in flesh and blood at one place in one time is claiming authority and power and honor and dignity and majesty that belongs to God and God alone. No wonder why people opposed him. No wonder why people couldn't comprehend what he was saying. But we, as followers of Jesus, we hold this truth to be central to our heart. That there is Jesus who has ultimate power, has ultimate authority, that he is God, so that what he says we do, he has power to command us, power to control us, power to lead us, power to send us. So when we engage with Jesus, we engage with God himself. 
And we give Him all the power, all the credit. We give Him all the honor. We give Him all the glory. So it begins with identity. And then Jesus goes on very, very quickly, very, very directly to talk about authority. If this is who He is, God in the flesh, what has He come to do? What are His particular responsibilities? After that passage in in verse 19 where he says that whatever the father does, the son does. In verse 20 we're told, For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, just as, even so, just as, even so, the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So we move from identifying Jesus equal with God. We move then to Jesus in terms of the authority that he has. And he's emphasizing now the authority that he has to give life. Well, you might say, well, I already have life. My heart is beating. My blood is pumping through my body. My my brain is working. So therefore, I'm already alive. Now, Jesus is obviously not speaking about the physical reality of life because he's speaking to living people. He's obviously speaking about something different. That chorus, that uh, scriptural song that we just sang, the engagement with Nicodemus, speaks about a new birth spiritually. Nicodemus was alive physically, but Nicodemus needed to be spiritually born again. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need this gift of life that only Jesus can give. You need that new heart that only Jesus can provide. You need a new mind that only Jesus can give to you. So Jesus says that the Son now has authority to give life. But notice how he puts it. And this, again, might um, raise our attention a bit here. He says, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Is Jesus saying that the gift of salvation then is discretionary? that there are some who get it and some who don't. I thought this was what Jesus had come to do, that Jesus had come to give life. I think it was Voltaire, uh, the French philosopher. He didn't say this in English. He would have said it in French. But he said something along these lines, to forgive, that's God's job. And we might think to give new life, well, that's just Jesus' job. That's what he comes to do. And yet he emphasizes here that this gift of life is at his discretion. There were a series of sermons uh, preached in the 19th century by an American preacher, uh, theologian, uh, W.G.T. Shedd, and the title of these sermons was The Exercise of Mercy, Optional with God. By its very definition, mercy is optional. The emperor Napoleon was once approached by a mother, And she pled with him for mercy for her son. I think his son had fallen asleep on guard duty. She pled for mercy, but Napoleon replied, justice demands death. The mother replied, I'm not asking for justice. What I'm pleading for mercy is what I'm pleading for is mercy. And the emperor said, but he doesn't deserve mercy. She said, if it was what he deserved, it wouldn't be mercy. And that is all I am pleading for. The emperor heard her plea and granted her plea. He, he gave mercy at his discretion. 
And that's what God does through Jesus Christ. He gives mercy or grace or forgiveness at His discretion. When we come into the presence of God, we come into His presence on His terms, on His conditions, not on our terms and not on our conditions. We can't say, well, God, God will forgive because that's the kind of God He is. God will let bygones be bygones. He'll, he'll bury the hatchet. He won't hold this against me. In effect, what you're doing there is saying, I'm coming to God on my terms. I'm defining God as I wish. But Jesus challenges that sense of our own authority or that sense of our own autonomy. And he says, no, the son gives life and he gives life to whom he chooses. So the gift of life or the gift of salvation, we might then describe as particular or or special or or discretionary. So the gift of salvation, the gift of life is at, at the authority of the son. But so, too, is judgment. Because we move quickly from what we would describe as resurrection, for just as the Father raises the dead in verse 21. In verse 22, moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. That's who we're dealing with here today. We're dealing with Jesus Christ, who is God and who is man and who has the power to save and will have the authority to judge. And he will judge all. Every, each, each one of you and me, we will have an appointment that we will keep and we will stand before this son, same son of man, this same son of God, and we will give an account. You're going to give an account for your life. You're going to give an account for what you did and what you didn't do. And even today, you're going to give an account for what you did with what you heard. Jesus said hearing is not sufficient. Hearing the word is not enough. Hearing and doing. Believing and repenting, having faith and turning from sin, that's what he is requiring from us today. So the authority that he is claiming, and it's not surprising that Jesus produced enemies. If he's claiming the authority to give life or not, if he's ultimately claiming that he will one day judge the living and the dead, you can imagine why people were offended. Who is this man? Who can claim such things? Not only is he working on the Sabbath, but he says he has authority to work on the Sabbath because he and the Father, he and God are equal. And not only is he working on the Sabbath, but he says that he can give life or withhold it. He will judge the living and judge the dead. But these stupendous claims are exactly what he says. And if you have an understanding of Scripture, you don't need to have all the technical language, but know this, that Jesus always says what he means And Jesus always means what he says. He doesn't shade the truth. There aren't small print or exceptions or exclusions, but what he says he means, and what he means he says. So we have the identity of Jesus, and then we have the authority of Jesus. And just when we're thinking now that this gift of life is restricted, he says, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Verse 24 opens wide the gates of mercy. Verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Now, this is where our limited minds have trouble. We can understand that Jesus has come to save some and not all. We might not like it, but we can understand that. 
But then Jesus goes on to say, basically, the door is open to anyone. The door is open to everyone. Well, what is it, Jesus? Is, are, you, are you giving life to those whom you choose, or are you opening the gates wide to anyone and everyone to come in? And the answer, of course, is yes. He gives life to those to whom he chooses to give it, but he, often, but he also opens the door wide so that anyone and everyone can respond. But we must respond to him personally, and we must respond to his terms and conditions. We don't come to Jesus with our terms. We don't come to Jesus with our conditions. In America, there was a TV game show a long time ago, Let's Make a Deal. And the TV host would have something. He would have a box and a table. He would have a curtain. and, And he would make deals with the audience. Do you want this? Or do you want that? Or are you willing to trade this for that? Now, if we are honest with ourselves, we often approach God in the same way. God, you do this, and I'll do that. God, you give me this, and I'll give you that. God, you help me here, and this is what I'm going to do for you. That's coming to God on your terms and coming to God on your conditions. Jesus says you can come, anyone. You can come, everyone. But you've got to come on these terms and conditions. You've got to hear the words of Jesus, and you've got to believe in the God who sent Jesus into this world. This is a personal invitation that requires a personal response. And when you get talking to people, and people generally acknowledge that there is a God, and they might generally hope that somehow, some way, they might find themselves in heaven when all is said and done, but you ask them, how? How is it that you will be one day not here, but one day there? And the answer to that question is varied. People have a lot of different ideas about what heaven is like, but even more ideas about how we get from where we are to where God is. That's not enough. That's not sufficient. We, we can't simply say, God, I want to go to heaven. This is the way I want to go. This is how I want to get there. This is what I want to do. Jesus says no. He says, here's the way to heaven. Here's the door. Here's the gate. Here's the path. You enter through that gate. You walk that narrow path, and you believe in the one that God himself has sent. These are his terms. These are his conditions. Jesus came into this world to seek and to save the lost. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're still in that category of lost needing to be found. So we have the identity of Jesus. We have the authority of Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about testimony. It's interesting because he quotes several different testimonies. He talks first about John. He then concludes by talking about Moses. And in the middle, he speaks about the testimony of his father. The Bible is God's testimony about himself. The Bible is God's testimony about us. And the Bible is God's testimony about his son. Testimony is a legal word. It's a courtroom word, and it's where you state something that is true. You can only state what you know. You would never be asked to testify in a court of law about something you don't know, something you didn't see, something that you have no knowledge of. That would be irrelevant. That would be completely nonsensical. But testimony is the solemn statement of truth. John the Baptist, of whom Jesus is speaking here, you have sent to John and he testified to the truth. 
John the Baptist, as Jesus described here, was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy this light, his light. What did John say? John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you the Christ, John? No. He constantly denied being the Christ, but he constantly emphasized his role as a signpost to the Christ. So here you have a testimony. There's Jesus. And there is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. As important as John was, as important as weighty as his testimony was, Jesus said, I've got a weightier testimony here. God the Father, my own Father, testifies concerning me, says Jesus. Remember at the baptism of Jesus? This is my beloved Son, whom I love. Remember the testimony at the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. God testifies concerning Jesus. God points to Jesus and gives Jesus his ultimate seal of approval. And even Moses. Moses, the expert, the ultimate authority to which the people were referring. And constantly we see this comparison between Moses and Jesus. Moses said this. Jesus comes along and says, you may have heard it, you may have heard it said, but I tell you. Or even the feeding miracles. Remember, Jesus feeds 5,000, Jesus feeds 4,000. And the response is, big deal. Moses fed the children of God in the wilderness for 40 years. It's not just one banquet on one occasion, but it was day in and day out, every day for 40 years. And Jesus says, your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So you see, the whole of the Bible points in one direction, and that direction is Jesus. For example, you could look at Deuteronomy 18, one of the books of Moses, in which Moses wrote, for this is what, uh, when Moses wrote concerning the new prophet, he said, the Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. So from Genesis to Revelation, we have a signpost to Jesus. We have God himself speaking. We have John the Baptist speaking. We have Moses speaking. But the problem is, it's not that the people didn't hold the scriptures in high regard. They held the scriptures in too high a regard. What does Jesus say in John chapter 5? He says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. The Bible is not the source of eternal life. We don't worship the Bible. We don't look to the Bible for the gift of life. The Bible's main purpose is to point us to the source, to show us the way. The Bible itself, Scripture, is not the way. In the time that John is writing here, he's writing in the Roman Empire. The Romans had many skills. They were skilled at military matters. They were skilled uh, in legal matters. But they were also very skilled in road building. You know the the aphorism, the the statement, all roads lead to Rome. Well, that works both ways. All roads lead to Rome and all roads lead from Rome. Rome, the capital of the empire, was the hub. So any road that would would be built would connect the hub to the outlying area. So you could go from Rome out and you could go from out into Rome. Think of the Bible in those terms. Every verse, every chapter, every book points us to Jesus. But so too... 
every book, every verse, every chapter points us from Jesus to go out. So today, when we read the Bible, it's for one or two, of two purposes. If you're not yet a Christian, this testimony points you to Jesus, points you to, source, to the source of life, points you to the one who alone can save, points you to the ultimate judge of the living and the dead and says, here are his terms and conditions. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. Here's the promise. He has crossed over from death to life. Have you accepted this testimony? Not do you trust in the Bible. Trusting in the Bible is not sufficient for salvation, though having the Bible is a, as, as a tool or as a means by which God reveals himself is absolutely essential. We need to know who God is. We need to know who Jesus is, and the Bible tells us. But our faith is not in the Bible. Our faith is in the one to whom the Bible points us. So the Bible points us to Christ. But for you Christian here this morning, the Bible points us from Christ into the world. The Bible tells us how to serve. The Bible tells us how to witness. The Bible tells us how to bring this message to other people. So all roads lead to and all roads lead from. All the Bible leads us to Christ and all the Bible leads us from Christ. But Jesus is speaking to some hard-hearted people here. The miracles didn't change their heart. The sermons didn't change their heart. They saw Jesus face to face and their heart was unchanged. What about you? Has your heart been changed by Jesus? Has your life been changed by Jesus? Do you hear the words of Jesus? Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you, do you confess with your mouth that, that Jesus is Lord? And do you gladly and willingly place your life in his hands? Because if that is the case, then he's in charge. He is God, equal with God, so he has the power to speak and the power to command. He has the authority of life and the authority of judgment, so one day you will give an account to him. If we really know who Jesus is, if we really honor him and worship him as we are meant to, if we seek the praise of God rather than the praise of men, your life will never, ever be the same again. So the Christian needs to take Jesus seriously, who he is, what he has done, the power and the authority that he has. And if you're not yet a Christian, God welcomes you open-handed. He invites you warmly and generously into his kingdom, into his family. He says, here is the way, it's wide open. Here is the door, it's open and there's a mat out to welcome you. But you must come in through this door. You must come in through this gate. You must accept the terms that God himself has given. And the only way that we have to come to know God is through the Son whom he sent. You read the words of Jesus, you read the words of God. You hear the teaching of Jesus, you hear the teaching of God, you see the actions of Jesus, and you see the actions of God. God in the flesh, Jesus, the Savior of the world. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. Is he yours today? Do you trust him? Do you place your faith in him? And in so doing, are you willing to let him lead you and guide you from now until that one day where you will be with him in glory. Because then it's true that you indeed have passed from death to life. May God bless his word. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. 
That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLACE, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.